All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies and television shows occasionally here and there from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. We're going to maintain our series that we've been doing with the uh, the man behind Liberty Weekly with uh, covering some Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. We're doing it all summer and uh, this one will be a lot of fun. Um, Robert is my co-host and, uh, we'll say hello to you for a moment before we get into the last night's person show and introduce our guest, Pat McFarland once again. Hey babies. How's it going? Glad to be here. Yeah. So in the pre-show, which is available for our Patreons, we were playing Pat's old, uh, sultry intro music and Robert was getting, <laughs> I was enjoying the hell out of myself. He it was, was very, <laughs> very pleasurable. He, uh, he's quite flexible, that man. And, uh, he rarely leaves the house. So mm. Let's get in that lessoners first of the show and uh, hide your kid. Yeah, you guys do, baby. Hey, everyone! It's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, the Last Nighters, and the Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where we're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Tonight, we are continuing our series with Liberty Weekly, where we talk about Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, earlier in June, I think we did uh, Season 1, Episode 7 on Justice with Pat uh, from Liberty Weekly, and that one was a lot of fun. So we brought him back tonight for this episode, uh, where we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 9, The Measure of a Man. And this is Episode 79 of the show, so lastnighter.com slash 79 for the show notes and more. And if you like what we do here, do please give us some reviews on the old iTunes slash Apple podcast. That brings up our rankings and ratings and gives us uh, more eyeballs, more recommendations to people. So, Pat, uh, welcome back to the show. Remind our audience who you are real quickly and where they can find you. And then we will kick this bad boy off. Hey, buddy. Back to be uh, glad to be back on here. I'm Patrick McFarlane of the Liberty Weekly podcast. I'm a practicing personal injury and civil rights attorney. Uh, most recently, we had a couple episodes. Keith Knight is my co-host, and we did we debunked Ayn Rand's objections to anarchism. That was a real fun episode. And also, we aired Keith's interview with Gene Epstein of the Soho Forum. And so those were some really good content that we put out there, uh, but glad to be back. Since, I, since we did the episode for Star Trek this last time, I've since become a fan of Star Trek The Next Generation which I wasn't beforehand. So now I'm a, a little bit more eminently qualified to cover this material, but I'm glad to be digging into this episode, season two, episode nine, the measure of a man. So let's get into it. All right. Yeah. We're going to venture back into the neutral zone and boldly go where no man has gone before to discuss another episode of star Trek. Mm. So uh, just a reminder, this is our continuing mission to cover a few key episodes of this thought provoking series for the summer. And uh, after this one, we're going to do one more at least in August, which will actually be a continuation of this one, as, as you will come to see what we talk about here. So this is available on the old Netflix, and it is Star Trek The Next Generation Season 2, Episode 9, The Measure of a Man. It is described as thus, when Data refuses to be disassembled for research purposes, Picard is enlisted to defend his rights in court. So that's all we've got to go on from a description. But then we've got a copious amount of notes. And might I add, and, and Robert, you can back me up on this. I mm. had a foolish notion that we would not only have discussed this episode, but mm. also the Justice episode at one time and maybe even potentially the third episode that we're going to be talking about. So uh, that was really, really dumb of me because this one, I think, is going to be chock full of content. Yeah, you you real stupid because uh, my man, Patty McFarlane, he knows a thing or two about legal procedure. He knows what court systems are in Washington, D.C., and he will tell you all about it, regardless of the relevance or not. It was it's super relevant. Come on, guys. <laughs> Objection. Objection. Sustained. You're going to. So gonna... this one. Yeah, this one. This one. We got 
we got this dude who's coming up on the enterprise and he's like data man you're a talking toaster and we're gonna take you apart and we're gonna make more talking toasters and it's gonna be sweet because there's gonna be all these talking toasters and data's like what and picard's like nah and wrecker's like uh-uh and then they talk about it and they have a little uh powwow and uh how does it go that's about how it goes there's a there's a lady who turns into the court lady she's like the judge who what is her official standing in starfleet i forget she's a jag a judge advocate general and her name is philippa uh lavoie and she has a history with picard she tried him in a court martial for the stargazer incident which i am not nerdly enough to know exactly what that is i know what the stargazer incident is (laughs) fucking nerd alert yeah what is it well, it was since there was an episode, I think, in season one or season two, where basically Picard opened fire on a vessel that I think hadn't opened fired on him first. And so he like did a special stargazer maneuver. And then when it was just appearing from hyperspace, he blasted on it or he did a special maneuver and then got out of hyperspace and then initiated fire first on it or something like that. So there was a question about who was the aggressor in that event. Yes. Mm, and they revisit like a very libertarian argument. Yeah, maybe we could do that one, but it um, it happened before the Next Generation series came into being. So, but there's an episode that references it where they find the logs from the ship that he that Picard himself was on, and I think it's the Klingons who are trying to try him for for that, or it's some of the people with the huge brows or the huge heads or something. But that'd be a good one to do. That that doesn't narrow down. There's that's every Star Trek race. The ones that are dirty capitalists that only Romulans or the Ferengi Ferengis Ferengis. with the big ears. Yeah, those and the forehead brows, and they want to make money. I said the forehead brow. Yeah, you were close. Okay. Yeah, they got the little teeth. Forehead brow Ferengi sounds almost Ferengi. Yeah. Yeah, close enough. It's a good episode. Yeah. Well, before we we really get into this one, I I I like to go linear because I'm taking notes as I'm watching. So I'm going to direct this to you, Robert. The mm. opening poker scene sort of sets the tone. And I know that you are a bit of a poker player slash fan. So why don't you oh, walk yeah. us through what, what is on display here? What's happening? And why is it relevant to the rest of the story? Man, you put me on the spot here. I didn't know this question was going to be asked of me. I'm not like a witness on the stand. Well, you could play Lady Gaga's poker face because you're born this way. Mm. Yeah. So this is 1991 or something like that. So they're playing five card stud which would be, I guess, the game people recognize as poker at the time. And th- but nowadays, you'd be playing Texas Hold'em. Right, but this is before like p- poker became popular, like super popular in like the mid-2000s, right? Well, yeah, the 2001, I believe, was the first year they, they televised it because they had the whole cards and Chris Moneymaker won. And then poker exploded because it was actually interesting to watch. You got a guy, you see his cards, and you see what kind of decisions they make. Well, in this episode, Data's playing with a bunch of his buddies and what happens is is he gets bluffed even though he has an amazing hand he gets bluffed off his hand by Riker and he because he doesn't understand the idea that someone would be bluffing with nothing essentially kind of lying sort of a fraud type situation and he doesn't quite understand the nuance and the reason why someone would want to do that which is a little simplistic but whatever now how would you say that applies to the episode Dan because it, it He's trying to learn about humanity, right? So he's not quite a human yet, but he is a sort of life form, I would say. Well, that's yeah. what the whole episode's about. I think it sets the table that he's not quite human and he lacks that instinct because that's what they say is, you know, you're you're not playing the cards, you're playing the the man across from you, right? So the the reason that Riker played with nothing and bluffed Data was because instinctually he knew that Data would likely fold with you know calculating that well if Riker's gonna stay in then he must have like the king of hearts because that's the only card that would have beat what data had because he had a queen of hearts and it would have been a flush to the queen right so Riker could have had well I guess the ace or the king and data must have assumed due to all the probabilistic calculations that he can perform you know 21 trillion cycles a second or whatever he can do that that must be the reason why Riker is still in the game right if he was acting rationally right now he said that he's taken in all of the information from all of the books and all the resources available throughout history that is in the records. But I, I got to think that that can't be quite accurate because 
the whole concept possibly. of bluffing would have been prominently discussed and and theorized about uh, in those texts. But Before he even sat down at the table, he would have to understand that bluffing is a big part of the game. He would have to know mathematically that you're only able to get premium cards 20% of the time, 15% of the time. And in order to win the whole game, you can't rely on that kind of a percentage. You have to win 30% of the time, 40% of the time in order to win. So he would have to know that. So I think it's a, a bit of a flaw in the writing, but I, I get what they're trying to say. The, the important part is that you're coming out of it with Data still has is still studying humanity and he's not quite there yet. Right. And I think it sets up the audience to find Maddox and Riker's arguments in the opening of the uh, little trial. Very, very convincing. And I found them convincing. I, I, I did. Even in this second watching, I did today. Oh, really, sir? Are you going to argue for the uh, Data as a toaster argument? Well, that was the original finding. Yeah. He's Starfleet property. They can take him apart if they want to. Well, I think that this uh, the whole poker scene is basically data failing the Turing test, right? And this is something I was, I thought we'd probably stumble upon at some point, is that the Turing test, for those of you who don't know, is a test of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior equivalent to or indistinguishable from that of a human. So if a human evaluator would judge natural language conversations between a human and a machine designed to generate human-like responses, I'm reading from Wikipedia here. Evalu the evaluator would be aware that one of the two partners in the conversation is a machine. So basically from that interaction, Riker knows that, well, Riker knows that Data is a machine before he goes into, but because Data doesn't understand why someone would bluff, he fails the Turing test. Yeah, But no, of course, that's not necessarily Maddox's argument, though. Right. He's not arguing whether or not Data is a machine and everybody else is a human. He's arguing that Data is not sentient. Right. which is a different standard. Right, and... Because that's and, essentially the argument. Go ahead, Daniel. I was just going to say, regarding the Turing test, yeah, Data doesn't pass that even from the initial get-go. Like, yeah. there, there's no question that he is an android, and he responds as such. He can't even con do contractions, which seems odd to me, that if he's so advanced, it shouldn't be that much... <laughs> you know, that much more difficult to, to be able to do contractions. But, uh, yeah, the Turing test, I think that's like an artificial intelligence kind of um, measure or uh, whether like something has achieved a certain level. Um, but not necessary for property rights to come into play. And that's the other topic. Right. And and right. if we're going to go down this path just for a little bit longer, before we're going to legality of all this, I think that, the, that this exposes the Turing test a little bit because data clearly is an artificial intelligence, yet he would fail a Turing test. Right. He would, but I don't know if the Turing test is the end-all be-all for sentience though, right? I don't think that's what it's trying to establish. It's just trying to establish how good we are at creating artificial intelligences to mimic human beings, to mimic human consciousness and thought processes and rationality and that sort of thing. Right. So he would have failed that test, but he would have far advanced it in other ways. So really, it's just like one metric. Right. And that's a main criticism of the Turing test itself, is that the Turing test does not directly test whether the computer behaves intelligently. It only compares it to human behavior. Which is semi-intelligent at best, let's be honest. Right, right. I mean, socialism was really popular, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, AOC got elected. Come on, people. I mean, I was oh, going to say, yeah, massive props to you, Daniel, for pointing out the biggest major flaw in the Turing test organically and not referring to Wikipedia. That means I passed some test. Right. <laughs> and uh, speaking of AOC, um, Tom Woods just came out with his new book, AOC is Wrong. And you go to aocisrong.com, and I'll post a link on our show notes page, and you can check that out. Uh, for all your socialist uh, <laughs> leaning buddies who think she's got some great ideas, uh, you can. Now, did he just, just copy paste? Copy paste his Bernie is wrong book and just replace and, do a search replace feature. He's like Bernie he and replace it with AOC. Uh, probably I could for ninety percent of it. What he's done, I believe, is taking uh, transcripts of his episodes where he's discussed topics that are relevant to her rhetoric and basically just put them as chapters in a book. So it's not like a fully, you know, re. Not like Meltdown, where he's like sitting down and writing out chapters. and Right. Yeah, this is just, hey, here's transcript one, two, three, what, you know, about these topics. Uh, but, you know, it's still, it's still totally relevant and still just crushes her naivete and wrong think. <laughs> Actually, that's not the right way How to say it. How dare you talk about a woman POC? Unbelievable. She doesn't have wrong think. Wrong think is, is not acquiescing to political correctness. What she has is uh, totally misguided uh, and, and lacking in basic economic. Uh, hey, hey, I'm going to white knight for her for a second. 
it's her truth and it's beautiful thing right and and my favorite thing when when you do criticize her is that people come back to you and say you just don't like her because she's a strong woman yeah i'm like that's well, i'm just intimidated by her femininity no she's an idiot right. you know anyway let's get back to the star trek thing i didn't mean to to go into the uh turing test too much there but what did you guys think of when maddox gets introduced by an admiral to picard and the admiral's like he kind of soft pedals. He's like, yeah, uh, Maddox is going to have like a request for you later, but that's not important right now. I want to see the Enterprise. Like, it seems like a total setup kind of situation, you know? Yeah, I would imagine in Starfleet situation, you're you're basically in a kind of a military organization where you're following orders. And uh, maybe he knows that Picard's not going to be happy about this situation. I don't know. What so do was the Admiral then displaying like some nuance in how he was going to present this difficult information to Picard by buttering him up and like sort of distracting him a little bit, sort of soft pedaling it in there. Something that data would have failed at. Mm. Now I see what you're going with. Yeah. Yeah. He would have failed at this. He's I, I don't, it's been a while since I've watched some TNG. Maybe we can go to our expert Patrick on this, but I believe data is much more of uh, I'm just going to tell it like it is very bluntly kind of a guy. Yeah. He's a foot in the mouth. I think pretty often. I think they make a point of that. Right, Pat. Yeah. He's a lot like myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think, I've kind of, I, I think that Picard is one of the best Starfleet captains in the entire fleet. So I don't know if he, he has, because in some episodes earlier to this, there was an admiral that came up to him and wanted him to be one of the lead professors at Starfleet Academy and Picard turned him down. So I think it might be the fact that Picard is very well respected in the fleet. And there's an entire maneuver named after him. It's from the Stargazer event, I believe it was. So the Picard, it sounds like a Picard. section, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know. It's kind of weird because this uh, this Jag officer has a boner for Picard and it's kind oh, of yeah, boners. Picard is like this skinny, tiny, lanky person. I like how you said uh, Jag officer. The Jag <laughs> officer has a boner for him. <laughs> and she she's um, she's got some interesting commentary a little bit later on. And, and I've got a few notes on it. You sexy man. In yeah, your window, in your endo. Or, you know, coming on to him. Yet when she, when he's forced, like his only recourse is to appeal to her for resolution to this dispute. That's a telltale sign of uh, the monopoly on justice. That is a huge problem. And I know, Pat, this is a big wheelhouse for you is, is you think there should be polycentric law. And I totally agree with you. But she twists that. She twists the fact that he came to her into this, oh, you came to me because... You, you really like me without, you know, admitting it. So she turned it into this emotional thing when Picard was like, no, this is my only option available to me. Therefore, I'm coming to you. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it is weird. Um, and, and trying to think about how conflicts are settled inside of a singular business. Do you outsource dispute resolution or do you only have one HR person at your office? You know, I, I don't really know. I don't know what the answer is to that. But I mean, within Starfleet itself, of course, there's going to be a monopoly. It's a singular organization. I don't know if they would outsource dispute resolution or at least they would have more than one goddamn JAG office. Well, this is a new outpost in the neutral zone. They just opened up. That's what the Admiral was talking yeah. about. And she just got assigned to this area and she doesn't have staff. She has one one naive ensign. And she actually tries to lean on that as a reason for not hearing Picard's petition against her ruling. And Picard's like, whoa, 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 Miss by the book. You're required by your own rules to do this despite the lack of resources. Well, then doesn't she end up hearing the appeal herself? Yes, she does. So what the hell? But only after enlisting all the Star Trek main actor guys to serve as court yeah. people. I don't understand that either. I mean, these people are not at all qualified. Not that you have to get a license or be part of the bar or anything to do this. But hey, we got a janitor. He could do something. Right. Exactly. I mean, oh, Picard blows up starships. He'll be a great defense attorney. That's right. And well, then same Z's. Come on, Patrick. You know they go by seniority. I mean, you and then you choose Riker as a as the prosecutor. Some both all parties having a conflict of interest here. I mean, major ethical problems. Yeah, yeah. and then she argues and makes sure, like, if I even sense that you're not doing this to the best of your ability, and she threatens him, right? Yeah. 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 And when he refuses to do it, because he's like, well, I don't believe what I'm going to be arguing. She's like, well, if you're not going to do this, then I'll just rule summarily against you anyway. Right. Uh, so in a way, like she's being this little totalitarian. Yeah. 
I think they weird how that it happens with a monopoly. Right. Yeah. Monopoly on that. But I mean, they do kind of solve it elegantly in the episode, I think. And and as I was saying earlier, I found Riker's argument very convincing. Like he literally is a machine. They take his arm off. They turn him off with a switch. He's now going to be turned off by a man. Which never happens to you in the past. This is, this is the first time. Uh, but yeah. prior to that, I really liked Usually um, it's the other way around. Data's interaction with Picard, where he's like, Captain, I will not submit to the procedure. And Picard tries to go with this line of, well, you know, it's important to Starfleet that they get this information and can create more, more beings similar to you to, you know, think of all the possibilities, you know, like we can do so much more, all this stuff. And Data says, well, you know, LaForge has got these bionic eyes, right? And they're way superior to human eyes. So therefore, should every officer be required to gouge their eyes out and get these like fake eyes? That was a that was pretty compelling. I like that. Yeah, hey, that is an excellent argument against the greater good argument. If if there's if greater good is so great, then why aren't we always taking that path and, and enforcing that at all times? When in act, you know, when when, it, when they always want to do that, it's always at the expense of the individual and against the individual will. Right, and that's one of uh, Rothbard's um, critiques of Benthamism is well, you know, greater good is 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 fine up to a point, but say you're in the lesser number, then what? Is that an equality as a revolt against nature too? Egalitarianism. Or, again, yeah, again, egalitarianism. Um, before we get further, did I mention that I briefly considered entering the JAG Corps? I think I've heard <laughs> that before. Mm, yeah, for, during that one for second year law school, I thought about it for all of like two or three days, and then I didn't. Also, JAG officers don't have to pass the bar; they can be admitted to any jurisdiction within the U.S. or its territories for any reason. Uh, membership has its privileges. It does. Um, so how much do you guys want me to talk about procedure? Because I have a whole bit I can talk about the adversarial process versus the civil law system. You can go, but we might raise objections if it drags on. <laughs> you fuckers. <laughs> um, right. Well, before you get into it, I, I did like Picard when he first came to, uh, Le what's her name, Louvois? And he's like, hey, I read all this crap about transfer of officers, and it's all gobbledygook, and I don't understand it. I feel the exact same way. I have uh, an entrepreneurial effort and I have a LLC and have to deal with the state. And I read these regulations that they make you adhere to. And I'm like, what the fuck are they even talking about? It is nonsense. It is total nonsense. And and how anyone accomplishes anything in this, in this uh, structure is beyond me. But I love how Picard brought it up. He's like, I can't make sense of any of this crap. That's why I came to you. I mean, it's also Hence the reason why lawyers exist. I yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> so you can pay an egghead to do a few simple tasks for you and then have it done. I mean, in lawyers' offices, they literally have form templates that they either buy or that they painstakingly made themselves. And when someone wanted to come in, when I was doing LLCs, when someone wanted to come in, we would just do a control F and replace the name and then charge $300. Oh, only $300? <laughs> They're getting enough light. You could charge like five times that. Easy. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, you know, my wife and I were talking just this morning because we're we're going to go meet with my CPA next week. And I was like, yeah, you know, all this accounting stuff that that these CPAs and accountants do, probably 95% of it is tax compliance bullcrap, bullshit. Probably. And, you know, double book book double entry bookkeeping is super important and you really do need to have economic calculation to understand if you're wasting resources, misallocating if you if you're making a profit or not. And so it is an important thing to know, but all of the intricacies that are required of you to run a business is insane. And I think that most workload from accounts would go away overnight if the tax code were abolished. And so I think if there is such a thing as an accountancy lobby or a CPA lobby, they probably love it that there's new regulations and new laws and new ambigu ambiguities uh, because it scares people like me from doing my own taxes because I'm yeah, like, they see the new proposals and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is written in like plain English. We got to gobbledygook this shit up. Right. Right. And, and the, the consequences are pretty extreme if you get it wrong because they come to you and they're like, well, you lied to us, even though we make it contradictory and really hard to understand. Uh, and if we deem that, you know, you owe us more money, uh, owe us right in quotation, they um, Daniel, come on. <laughs> the greater good. Maroads. Maroads and my schools. Anyway, uh, Pat, I before I hijack that, you were gonna go somewhere. I'm sorry. Oh, no worries. Hopefully this is relevant, you guys. Yeah, I we'll find I'm out. Interesting. We'll um, 
so basically um in the world well in the western world there's two different prominent types of legal systems one is in the british english tradition which would be the adversarial legal system which is where we have a plaintiff and a defendant and they're both opposing sides and they knock heads in order to find the truth of what the matter is or display what the truth of the matter is to the fact finder but in in, in layman terms is that what we would call common law um yeah in the common law system as opposed to like a civil law system that's all positive legislature made law or decreed from a king but it's not always like that because in, in England you have an adversarial system, but also in, in the U.S. we have the adversarial system, but there's also tons of codes and, and laws and statutes made by legislature. But I'm talking specifically about the courtroom procedure itself, where Picard and in this court-martial situation, it is adversarial, right? You have Picard on the defense, and then you have Riker who's prosecuting the case, and they're competing with each other to try and find the best resolution. While in an adversarial system, which is, from what I understand, in Germany, throughout Europe, in Italy, this was a big deal in that case, the Italy case, uh, Amanda Knox, if you recognize that, the Italian legal system was totally different, where the judge was the inquisitor, and the judge would kind of, from what I understand, conduct the investigation. And so it's not that you have two competing sides, but you have like a judge-led investigation. It's really weird, and the roles are reversed. But I think there are some strengths and weaknesses to both sides. But I would think that in this system of the Star Trek Enterprise, um, you would have an inquisitorial system as opposed to adversarial because savage capitalism is too savage, right? Well, what is, um, don't you have tribunals in a military situation generally under a court martial? Right. Yes. But you have the defense and the prosecution in that situation in the adversarial system, from what I understand. You know, I thought it was okay. interesting that she even admits that the question that they're even trying to answer is beyond her scope and her her realm of knowledge. You know, she's like, this is best left to philosophers and saints. Right. And I mean, just goes to show you that these people making these decisions are, are hardly qualified to do so. Um, Rothbard has a, a funny quote of, uh, in one of his lectures about um, I forget what it was, but it was some regulation about monetary policy. And he was like, OK. Oh, yeah, it was it was. um you're not supposed to say anything that could incite a bank run. And so he was saying, you know, technically what I'm saying right now in this lecture is, is illegal, but it would be up to some uh, judge who's neither qualified uh, nor understands economic theory to, to make the arbitrary decision on whether this is illegal or not, because he doesn't understand how monetary policy works and he, he's right. not qualified to. Right. And that's why you have a dominance of, well, you see the arbitration process and the mediation process really coming about within the American legal system too. Uh, one in part because the state system is so inefficient and at times incompetent. But a lot of times when you get to very complex areas of civil litigation, you will have the parties deciding to hire an arbitrator instead of having a judge in a state trial because arbitrators usually specialize in a very small segment of the law. And so when you get a special arbitrator for a certain problem, it is a binding resolution that holds the compulsory power of the state behind it, but at least both parties agree beforehand. But the arbitrator can go in, knows this specific area of law very well, and maybe would be a philosopher in this situation of this episode, um, as opposed to just uh, a judge, a state judge, or you know, a district court judge. They hear a lot of times, sometimes in big cities, they'll specialize in just criminal trials or some other things. But in a lot of times, the judge in the district court a trial judge is, I mean, doesn't know any more about this area of law and relies a lot on the attorneys to explain it to them in briefings and in argument before the trial. And it's it's strange. It really is strange. Yeah, that reminds me of um, how doctors, and I, I don't know if this is like a for sure thing, but I've heard this, that they don't know much about some of the drugs that they get. And the drug rep is there telling them, hey, here's what it does. Here's how it works. Like the drug rep knows like they're the ones telling them how it works and what happens. And it just seems like that that's often used as an attack against drug companies because like, well, they're telling the doctors what to think or whatever. Uh, so that just reminds me of that situation. I, I don't really have much to say beyond that. I mean, other than who would know more about the drug than the drug rep, right? A doctor can only know so much about so many things due to specialization and, and lack of, you know, scarce resources, time and effort, all those things. Yeah. I but mean, 
Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, but does the doctor have an obligation if they're the ones prescribing it to their patients to fully understand it and have they carry the burden, so to speak, uh, if this has a negative impact on their patient, right? Uh, maybe in the current system, but I mean, I'm of the opinion that anyone should be able to try anything for any reason at any time. So it's on the individual user on whether they're satisfied enough to take it or not. Right. You want to dive the current in? system if you get like malpractice suit against you, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, malpractice and uh, drug interactions are a significant killer. Um, Higgs has that in his book Against Leviathan. And I think it's something on the tune of uh, half a million people in the last 10 years. So more than die from car accidents and gun violence and all those things. And yet it's hardly talked about. I, I'm a medical malpractice attorney. I'm working on several medical malpractice cases right now. Um, we could go down a huge deep dive rabbit hole about informed consent if you want to. <laughs> I don't think we have time for that, buddy. We're <laughs> we're already over halfway through our show here. <laughs> Sounds really interesting, though. I like those discussions. Yeah, we could jump on that some other time. Well, let's let's move into the um, a question I have related to the courtroom proceedings and her basically forcing Riker to defend a position he doesn't believe in. How can you decree you must defend something you don't believe in to the best of your ability. And if I think you're holding back, I'm going to rule against you. Uh, and, and a similar corollary to that is, you know, in a, a trial, you always see this in, in movies and whatnot. They say, um, you know, strike that from the record and the jury will ignore the statement or ignore the whatever. But they're human beings. They recollect like it's going to color. It's going to flavor whatever goes from that point forward. You can't just, you know, men in black mind erase them. Well, and aren't lawyers also supposed to give like the best job they can to a defendant if regardless of whether or not he believes he's guilty, right? So y you've got this murderer and you know he's a murderer, but you're supposed to give the best possible defense anyway. So it's kind of there's a couple contrary to human human, you know, feelings. I don't know what you call it. Well, there's a couple things to unpack there. I guess, first of all, yes. A jury is not going to be able to unhear things and the judge can instruct them to disregard certain evidence or testimony, but juries are human and juries are imperfect. And as an attorney, that kind of works into your strategy too, is that, I mean, sometimes you can ask a question and you know the jury can't unhear it, even if the judge would instruct them not to. Um, should you do that? I don't know. But that is something you calculate into it. So it's all part of your grand strategy. On the other hand, it is also, it's an ethics violation. If you have a strong moral conviction against your client, you petition the court to um, recuse yourself from the case. If you know that you are unable to provide the type of representation that your client deserves, you have an obligation to petition the court to recuse yourself. Now, the court can hear your arguments and either approve it or deny it. But if you do have a huge moral quandary with it, you can certainly petition to do that. Well, that's what happens exactly in this. Yeah, herself and she's like, aha, too bad. Yeah. I wonder if they have ethics rules. I mean, I'm sure they do. It's 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 uh, encoded. It's part of Wisconsin statutes, at least here. Most states, they have ethics rules that are legislated. Yeah. So it seems like either Starfleet doesn't have those sort of ethics or they're conveniently left out of this episode. Right. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, data and his sentience and, uh, you know, the Turing test we talked about earlier. Uh, but Maddox is basically saying, hey, I've got the gist of how to preserve your memory and you won't lose any of that stuff. And Data's response is, well, you might have the memories themselves as data points, but you're not going to have the nuance or the flavor. And and that reminded me of, um, you know, Robin Williams in uh, Goodwill Hunting talking to uh, what's his name? Uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. He's like, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Guns are bad, okay, but uh, I'm going to use them in every single one of my movies. Uh, but, you know, Robin Williams is like, well, what's what's it feel like or what's it smell like in the Sistine Chapel? And that's basically Data's point here is that you're going to lose the flavor of the moment. That could be lost. And there's an ineffable quality that you're not going to be able to replicate if you dismantle me and then re, you know, rejack my mind matrix style into my body again. Absolutely. And he, Maddox admits as much as that he may, you know, it's a, an imperfect system. He's not the original creator of data. He's just a fan of the guy who did it. And he's just trying to recreate the guy's work. But, you know, when data initially refuses, they're like, well, you can't refuse. And he's like, well, then I resign. And he's like, well, you can't resign because toasters can't resign. What do you guys think of that argument? I mean, 
you got somebody who says, I don't want to do this. And like, I'm sorry, I don't even recognize you as a living thing. It sure seems like as soon as he says, no, I don't want to do this, you kind of have to obey their wishes. I mean, this ties into the whole dehumanization thing that happens so often with um, adversaries in war or whatever. And Maddox refers to data as it and that and, you know, some non-gender specific pronoun <laughs> every every time until the very end, right? When he's sort of convinced by Picard's final argument, which we'll, which we'll get to. But Maddox is going into this thinking this is a computer and it can't refuse anything. It is simply a, a, an item. It is a thing. It is an implement. It is. And he even says to the uh, judge lady, if you wanted to retrofit the computer on the Enterprise, would you let it refuse you? And I mean, that's a good argument. It is, although we deal with these kind of situations a little bit more in um, Star Wars as well. So you got Star Trek, you got Data. Star Wars, you've got all these like R2-D2 units. There's only one R2-D2, but you got all like R2, R4, R3. You got all these different units. BB-8. And they kind of, yeah, you got BB-8. You got C-3PO. You got these robots, basically, that establish themselves as a little bit more than just robots, right? But I don't know if you'd feel as bad like blowing one up as you would maybe a data unit. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I think the fundamental question is whether data owns himself, whether he has property rights. And I think that beyond the question of sentience, it's a question of you have property rights and self-ownership if you are able to recognize the property rights of another and respect those property rights. And that's why I don't think that animals have property rights. That's why animals can be owned as property because there are no animals that can respect property rights in a conscious manner. My dog knows where she lives and she'll defend her property against aggressors and intruders. Will she just bite your, you know, well, okay. She bit so, my leg like five you know, times though. So I don't know about that. Right. I mean, if you tell your dog not to tear up your couch, will she listen to you because she knows that that's your couch and she, it's not right for her to do that. The beatings will continue until she's <laughs> yeah. So, and that's why I think it, I don't know, it might get kind of close with like apes and chimpanzees and stuff, but you know, chimps will go crazy and, and kill the hell out of you just for, you know, no reason. And then there's another question as to whether or not data has signed a contract to be a part of Starfleet. And then you get into the whole libertarian theory of contract, libertyweekly.net forward slash 88, because you can only contract for things that are inalienable property. Well, he does apply to enter Starfleet, right? Like he says, I want to join. Mm -hmm. And Maddox was the only person on the tribunal or whatever that said, no, he's not sentient. But he was overruled and Data was then admitted. So this is a guy who has already a preconceived notion going into it, that he is not sentient, he's not worthy of having rights or whatever, he's not capable of having rights. And so Maddox should be able to do whatever he wants. And he knows that there's some sentimentality that's going on with you know Picard and the crew members and all those things. So he has this trump card where he's like, all right, hey, Picard, give me data. And he's like, no, he's a valued member of my team. I don't trust what you're doing. So no, he's like, I'm afraid it might come to this. So I have orders to transfer him over to me under my command. And it was a, a you know a bit of a, what do they call it, a dick measuring contest uh, up to that point. And then he, then he pulls out that trump card. And I think in a structure like that, a militaristic type structure, that might make sense, but I don't think that would play well in the free market, you know, in, in a normal day-to-day -day situation. No, you can act that way in a monopoly. In the free market, you suffer market penalties from acting like that. So do we want to get into some of the procedures and your problems with them, Patrick? Or do we want to just move on to like Picard's main argument and wrap this thing up? What do you Let, think, let's guys? get to let's do Riker's <laughs> argument. And and this ties back to the Maddox thing a little bit, because he's like, What about my right to not be thwarted by blind ignorance? And I, I don't have one. <laughs> but that is uh, probably the argument of the left, you know, the progressive types who think that they are the intellectual and moral superiors to conservative types or even libertarians. Oh, for sure. And, you know, they're, they're like, well, we should have health care and education and all these things. And those troglodytes over there opposing us just do so out of either evilness or spite or because they don't understand. Yeah. And so we need to be able to do these things despite them for the greater good. Back to Robert. For the greater good, the technocracy for the greater good. Absolutely. Right. And and to take this just one step further, and then I'll get Patrick's take on this. This whole um, line of reasoning in in uh, in this episode where he says, my right to, to be able to pursue my research without this ignorance, 
That reminded me of a Joseph Mengele or Adolf Eichmann, you know, where he's doing human experiments for the quote unquote greater good or the the Third Reich. Um, and that, you know, that's devastating, I think, to to his whole uh, his whole pursuit there. Yeah, it's a it's a positive right, basically, because it I don't know, in order to fulfill that right, you have to violate the rights of others. Just doesn't make a lot of sense. On a side note. There's a documentary on Netflix about the guy who prosecuted the Nuremberg trials. And this guy was a 29-year-old Jew from Harvard who had never tried a case before and all of a sudden found himself prosecuting the worst war criminals that the world has ever known, aside from maybe Bush or Stalin. Um, It was really interesting, really inspirational. But then he goes on to fund the UN criminal court, which is... Like the Federation, basically. (laughs) Basically, yeah. I don't think that we should go into the court procedure, though, because that's another hour and a half, and it might get dry for you guys. It'd be cool if we could do an episode where do you, we do... Where well, I, do you have, like, your big objections? Like, the most egregious thing that would never happen that was used as, an, you know, to help facilitate the plot or something like that? There's, like, I mean, outrageous... There any contrivances? I mean, aside from the gigantic ethical issues about... You know, um, represent forcing Riker to represent him, right? Yeah. That and re- having people with conflicts of interest representing other people in the court. I mean, the personal relationship between the judge and Picard should have completely gotten in the way of this. You know, at one point, you're you're over. Wasn't she the prosecute? Yeah, she prosecuted his court martial, didn't she? Yeah, and, and he now didn't hear about it. Now she's going to be a neutral, ar- you know, arbitrator in in the trial where he is one of the counsel. Right. Uh, it says to her, you know, hey here's your chance to make law, make it a good one. <laughs> yeah. Are laws made from the bench? I think laws are found from the bench. That's a, it's a pretty important distinction. You get into the Federalist Society, judicial conservatism would say that a judge's role is to say what the law is and not what they think it should be. Um, so I'll let you chew on that. But other than that, I mean, there were lots of evidentiary issues. Um, that I just I'd have to rewatch it to really pick apart and do a play by play. Um, and the procedure of the trial itself was just thrown off. There was a lot of um, what Picard would do um, a direct examination or he would do a cross examination and then break out into argument. <laughs> that's no, that's unacceptable. You save your argument to the closing remarks. You don't argue. You don't argue with the witness on cross examination. You don't argue your case on cross examination. You wait till the fucking closing argument to argue. So, so maybe, in your words, then my cousin Vinny is a more accurate portrayal of the court. It's a little bit more. Okay. Actually, it's a little bit more accurate. Yes. Okay. Now it's possible they have this different system, right? And so they do allow this bit of back and forth, but it also makes good TV, compelling TV, because you yeah. sort of have to have the argument. You have to have the audience convinced, you know, that hey, Riker's got a pretty good argument here. And uh, what's Picard going to do? You know, did I mention to you before we did My Cousin Vinny that one of the Supreme Court justices cited My Cousin Vinny in an opinion? Yeah, yeah, we we posted show notes on that. Actually. Right on. And where can they find that, Daniel? Oh, man, when did we do My Cousin Vinny? It's been a while. Uh, I'd have to go back and look up the number. But I'll, I'll post that on our show notes page here at uh, lastnotes.com slash 79 for this episode. Where we're talking about data. Is he sentient or not? Does he have property or is he property? Oh, one one last thing, sorry, about... <laughs> so the one thing that was accurate about the trial and that Picard did very well is that he focused on what we call a prima facie case. And prima facie is basically establishing your case according to a given set of elements. You demonstrate to the jury that if A and B and C are met, then I win. But basically what Picard did is said, okay... They've met element A and they've met element B, but element C does not exist. Therefore, I win and data gets his way. So I thought that was accurate. Yeah, I actually thought that was really cool because it reminded me of how uh, Robert P. Murphy argues climate change. He basically takes their argument as a given and their data and says, "Okay, even if I accept every premise that you offer, you're still wrong. That's awesome. It's a good way to argue, too. Yeah. So what are those three things that... Because Picard asks Maddox, you know, what do we got to do to prove that data is, has, you know, essentially has property rights to put it in libertarian terms. Yeah, he, he says, goes, well, yeah. oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I thought you were asking. <laughs> I could. I was also asking rhetorically um, intelligence, self-awareness and consciousness. Intelligence is clear. He talks about his computational cycles per second or whatever it is. Self-awareness. Yeah, he knows what he is and who he is. They ask him, you know, what are you? 
But then consciousness is this nebulous thing that Picard points out. It's like, well, prove that I'm conscious. How do you do that? It's a good question. Yeah, he's like, mm, I'm waiting. <laughs> it was pretty convincing. It was pretty damn convincing. Yeah, and then, you know, the other thing that, that he shows with Data is that he has sentimentality, right? He brings up these artifacts or he has his accolades read, right? In in, a, in the very early part. And uh, Riker's like, oh, we, we accept all this into the record. And Picard's like, no, play it. I want to hear all these accolades. And then later, when they're reading off uh, Maddox's accolades, Picard's like, yeah, 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 move on, move on. You know, to like show that sharp contrast between the two to bring them closer together to a shared moment. Another good Will Hunting reference. Um, well done, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. It's like, I'm, I'm here all night. Uh, but uh, <laughs> where was I going with that? Oh, oh, sex robot. Sex robot. He mm, brings yeah, Tasha. Uh, I forget what her last name was, but she was apparently only in uh, the first season, season and a half of Star Trek The Next Generation. And for some reason, I remember her uh, from watching this when I was younger, and I thought that she was more involved in the show. But apparently, she was intimate with Data. With Data, and uh, that just isn't. Well, she got killed off in a later episode, like when one of the first seasons, at the end of season one, I think. Was that true, Patrick? Are you talking the about blonde the blonde lady, the ship security officer who was? Yeah, in the blonde. Yeah, Terry? yeah, she dies at the end of season one, I think. Right, and that's after being intimate with Data. Oh, I don't yeah. remember that. Yeah, they get it on, don't they? Aren't they like an item? I don't remember. You just watched all these episodes. Yeah, I mean, they were on. I mean, in between, I was feeding the baby and changing its diaper. Oh, the dad excuse. Sleeping Lovely. and drinking whiskey. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he has intelligence and self-awareness, but not consciousness. Not consciousness. To get us back on track. So you are property, Pat. You're property. disassemble you. Your family, your wife unit, and your child You're unit. You're talking to us. Oh, man. I look like a human, but there's nothing going on behind this facade. Well, and another part of Picard's argument was, well, we too are machines in a way, and we're also made by humans. So he's basically right. knocking down the two initial arguments from Riker that he was made by a human and switched off by a human, and that you know he's a, he's a machine, he's he's these parts and whatnot. So I thought that in an elegant way they scripted this very well. Like they actually yeah. had me hanging um, while watching this. I'm like, when Riker made his arguments, I'm like, oh, Picard's fucked, but he can't be because I know that Data survives or whatever. But it was um, it was really good. I, I thought that this I'm going into final summary review, by the way, <laughs> but do it. I found that this um, this whole series so far out of what I've watched again has very deep and philosophical questions. And it finds a way to actually concisely make you confront these moral quandaries. And then it provides a solution to them in this particular episode. I thought was amazing. I mean, I'm 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 in the upper nines on this thing as far as like how compelled I was to continue watching this and see what happens. And it, it was totally a cliffhanger until the end. And uh, they still don't like totally have the answer, like, but they know that they don't know the answer. And that's enough to thwart this risky procedure from happening to data because something unique could have been lost. And even data says, Hey, eventually Maddox, your, your investigations in this area might yield results. And at that time, I'll be ready to help you, but you're not ready yet. And Picard's take on this was, well, we're taking this legislation or this not legislation, but this this decision here is going to apply to a whole new race of sentient beings at some point. Like it's eventually we are going to have an entire population of these. You know, it's, it's like the Empire making uh, making the stormtroopers. Right. They're they're all the clones. Right. Um, so here I am mashing up like multiple universes here. Uh, and that's what led Picard to do his um, his slavery argument after talking to Whippy Goldberg. Because she's like, oh, they're going to have value, their property, and they're uh, disposable beings. And will we care about their rights or their feelings or things that are done to them? And will we put them in riskier situations? And I mean, that's the ultimate, you know, that's the ultimate decider in, in what happens with this. Because, I mean, she's not wrong. You know, you are going to treat them as disposable. But if they are sentient and unique and have these feelings, they have individuality, they have negative rights, they have rights to not be molested or destroyed or put in an undue risky situations without their consent. And uh, yeah, just overall thought this was a beautiful episode. So I'm going to go with a 9.1 on this bad boy. Nice. Yeah, I echo a lot of your thoughts, Daniel. This is an excellent episode. Uh, I remember the show being fantastic. Not this this particular episode, because I don't remember it from back in the day. But I remember just TNG being well-written. I saw, I saw a, a 
honest trailers recently that reminded me of a couple episodes which are a little more shithouse but this isn't one of them this is this is one of those classic episodes of television that reminds you what good things can come from network tv um yeah this is fantastic uh, the questions that it poses and like you said it didn't have all the answers but it recognized that it didn't have the answers so i think you know in, when it comes to sentience this this episode kind of reminds me of like parents and having children and how they hold their rights, essentially their, their negative rights in escrow until they declare themselves to be adult and fit and autonomous. And as soon as Data, who is a obviously a thinking, self-aware, capable of learning thing, declares his autonomy, you have to respect that. He claims his negative rights, his negative property rights. I, I think you can't treat him like just some talking toaster, some fancy Alexa device. You, when you do that, you you are committing an aggressive act. So this is an excellent show. It's like a 8.8. I'm going to go just a little under Daniel's excellent score, but 8.8 is still fantastic, especially for like a TV show. Are you kidding me? Um, yeah. If you're not into the TNG, we may be doing more of these. So get into it. What do you think, Pat? Yeah, see, I didn't. I wasn't even a huge Star Trek fan before we started this. I think I said that on the first episode. So I hadn't before you guys made me. Uh, my wife had tried to make me watch this TV show, but I never got into it. And now that I had to for you bozos, I watched three episodes, and I think this is the episode where it really kind of started to click for me, maybe. And then so it became the show that I put on when I'm taking care of the the boy and sitting on the couch and wanting to sleep instead. But um, it's not the greatest episode that I've seen so far. It was very good, not of the TNG, but uh, I'd give it a nine, solid nine. It was a really good episode. Well, you're, you're, you're teasing us. What is the best one you've seen then? I haven't decided yet. There's one oh, with yeah. a world full of like strong women. <laughs> oh, yeah? Amazon Town? Yeah. The Riker goes down and Death by Snoo Snoo? That yeah, yeah. <laughs> Death by Snoo Snoo. That's a good way of putting it. So. Sweet. Yeah. Or the other one where that blonde headed bimbo dies. I like that. She dies. She's from I hated her. She played in the uh the first Pet Cemetery movie and I hated her in that. So I'm glad I was I glad the her. one who was sex robot, sex robot with data. Sex robot with data. I forget her name. I'm glad she's dead. <laughs> wow. Wow. I hate her. Yeah, so a single death is a tragedy, Pat, but millions is uh totally fine, which yep. was echoed earlier. <laughs> In um in this uh, Star Trek episode where Data says he's a, a single entity is a novelty, but thousands is a race. Or Pat or uh, yeah, Picard says that, right? Did you just confuse me with Picard? Because I'll take that. Well, you are balding, so. <laughs> Ooh, that's a little below the belt. It's a dig, Mister Luscious Locks over there. <laughs> they are they are quite luscious and long. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Pat, and um, I think that the next one we do in this monthly series, early in the month will be very much related to this. You know, in fact, a uh, almost a genetic lineage version of this where Data has a child or creates a child. And then we get into questions of parental rights and whether the sentience and uh, rights afforded the parent as established in this episode apply to the offspring or if it is offspring. And that is the question. And also the title of the episode, The Offspring, I believe. And so we'll be doing that one uh, probably early August. But Robert, what are we doing after this? I think that uh, we have an incomplete on a movie that we had talked about last week that was an incomplete movie until our discussion and the extended version uh, made it make more sense. But we still have more to say on it. And I think also the follow up to it. I want to do this Star Trek series once a month so that we can refer to it as, well, it's that time of the month. Time to do Star uh, Trek. But in <laughs> But what you said is true. We it was weird. It was weird doing an episode and then not giving my final summary and review. We just kind of ended it, and it was like, but but I have to give a score. It's like, we no, to we're gonna play. we're gonna we're gonna finish it. We're gonna finish it later. We're gonna finish Batman v Superman with Shaheen, and then we're also going to do Justice League along with it. Which apparently there's not as much to talk about. I remember watching Justice League and just being dreadfully bored when I wasn't like outright outraged. Well, I guess I call it nerd raged because of the dumb things that are in it, but we'll see maybe with fresh eyes, you know, Shaheen kind of raised my appreciation for Zack Snyder just a little bit 
a little bit higher than it normally was. So maybe I'll look at it again and maybe see a few good things, but I doubt it. Shaheen is an OG, man. I love that guy. He's a good dude. He's a good He's a good dude. I was going to start singing The Offspring back when we mentioned The Offspring, but you segued really quick, so we're going to deprive the audience of that. We'll hey, say, come out and play. I was going to do She's Got Baggage, and it's all the emotional kind. Tell you yeah, what, keep them separated. during <laughs> our uh, Patreon bonus content, which we affectionately called Kathleen Turner Overdrive, why don't you bust out the guitar? And yeah. Knock that one out, huh, buddy? Yeah. I'll have to learn it first. I'm sure it's simple. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of The Last Nighters, episode 79, I want to say. Yeah, show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 79. If you like what we do here, you can hit us up at Patreon at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. Also find us on the Launchpad Media, and please do give us a review on the old iTunes and or Apple Podcast, whatever they're calling it these days. You could also give us a subscribe on the old YouTube, like us on Facebook, uh, send us all your money, the buy Dre a Ferrari Testarossa fund, whatever you got. And uh, that's a movie we should do at some point too, Robert, the, the NWA movie straight out of Compton. And we talked. Oh about yeah. You know, that's one of the negotiators top like two movies of all time. Oh boy. We're gonna have to do that one then. Uh, so anyway, uh, we will be back next week with justice league and a wrap up on Batman V Superman. Cause I had a bunch of stuff that we didn't even get to because Shaheen was so nerdery. He took us to Nerdery University on the background on this thing. We didn't even get to talk about like some of the issues I, I thought were worthy of discussion in uh, in the movie. So yeah, yeah. so he, he pulled the Patrick is what you're trying to say. He took us down to Nerdtown with the Patrick style talking. He he broke out the Lex Luthor's plan, which is actually important information because if you just watch it, it doesn't seem like he has really a plan, or it just seems like a bunch of things are happening. <laughs> but you know, Shaheen broke it down for us. Yeah, yeah, and and it was also uh, he went down the Patrick path, but in an interesting way. Oh fuck off! <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'll say good night from last night. All right, so we're. Still with the actual Anarchy podcast for a few more minutes before we get into the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, but Pat's going to have to leave uh, before too long because other obligations due to family. Uh, so is he property or is he a sentient being of his own? We will decide right now in this final moments here. Um, you can't prove he is. I can't unprove it either, uh, but Pinocchio is broken. Now, I thought that we were going to lean more heavily on the uh, slavery argument because apparently every libertarian has to like sign some anti-slavery pledge uh, these days, mm, according to Sarwark, right? Not a neo confederate or whatever. Um, but I, I feel like we still had a ton of content to talk about, even without getting into that er area. And in a way, and hate me if hate me because I'm beautiful here. We do. But I thought that the whole Whoopi Goldberg being the one to make the point that it is in fact slavery if they're creating a race of disposable beings, they're going to do their bidding and they're not going to care about their welfare and all these things was a bit um, PC in a way, even in 1993 or whenever this was made. Yeah, it's a bit on the nose PC. Um, but Star Trek has got a history of PC activity like we've talked about in the past. A little less obvious. I'd say they kind of integrate it into the storylines a little more organically than the, the ham-fistingness that happens these days. But still is a fairly progressive show. I mean, for a socialist utopia in space in the future. Yeah, right. It seems like a stretch to me, Whoopi, but okay. I mean, Data, Data, honestly, at some point, doesn't he say, I'm fine with it. I have a duty. So do with me what you will. Rabbi, you could say the same thing about any soldier who says, oh, it's my duty. So I'm going to charge the trenches and just get shot up like we saw in Legends of the Fall. Mm. Yeah, but are they doing that? Because, I mean. Because wow. it's been ordered, sir. Yeah, they've been ordered. I mean, but a lot of I've been watching a lot of World War Two shit today and like whatever. And it seems like a lot of those guys... He's officially a dad. Children were sold into it and they felt... But they still at the same time felt like it was their duty to go and do that. So even though they didn't want to do it, they did it anyways. Right, like Data. Yeah. He would have done it anyway. So basically you're making my argument for me. Thank you, Pat. You're a terrible lawyer. It's undeveloped. <laughs> uh, that's all right. That's okay. Um, Are they going against their will, though? I mean, it's wrong, yes. But do soldiers who volunteer to sign up... Are they what, I mean, yeah, it's kind of on the individual to make their own decision and they suffer the consequences of their choices. But 
they've been indoctrinated and lied to. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, but those it, contracts all have escape. All legitimate contracts have escape clauses, and there's no such thing as uh, you can just leave the army once you join it. You can't. Otherwise, you're you're a wall, and they come and drag you down and throw you in jail. I think we should enslave everyone and have them fight each other for our amusement. Well, I formally refuse your procedure, but I'm willing to help you in the future, Pat. <laughs> so one final thing I wanted to bring up because we're probably we only have a few more minutes here, but um, at the very end of the episode. Philippa Louvois and Patrick, or <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard. I don't know why I'm saying Patrick. Jean-Luc. Uh, they have another, you know, sexual innuendo thing. Oh, yeah. And she says, or he says, uh, Philippa, one more thing. Dinner? Mm. And she says, you buying? But I thought this was Star Trek, the next generation. There's no money. No buying anything. Look at the money in space. They got, they've moved past money. That's a barbaric thing of the past. It's a relic. So were they just using it as a colloquialism or did it mean something? Was it just innuendo? Was this a, a sexual overture on, on their part? Were they, were they speaking beneath the words, so to speak? Or is Star Trek inconsistent? I lean on the later. It's inconsistent as fuck. You're a wise man, Pat. <laughs> and I, I believe you should have the freedom to explore that question yourself. Thanks for giving me that right. So Pat, what do you, what do you got coming up next before we say goodnight to everyone here on the actual anarchy and get into our Kathleen Turner overdrive? Well, I am doing a podcast on Friday with D.K. Williams of The Law with D.K. Williams, and we're talking about the Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court refused to strike down state gerrymandering laws. Um, so that should be pretty interesting. All uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I've seen him on the Launchpad Media and uh, interacted with him a little bit. He's a he's a pretty smart guy. I, I've, I've seen some minarchist leanings, though, so you, you yeah. might explore that a bit. Well, see, I picked this case specifically because of that, because I knew that we'd agree a lot, or I figured we'd agree a lot on what was said. So even though he is a minarchist, this is a topic that we can both tackle with relish within the sphere of the current system. Maybe I'll ask him about that. I'm not sure yet, but he'll be a really good guest. He's a lawyer guy. Yeah, you guys got to stick together. <laughs> I'm, I'm building myself up for Stefan Kinsella, which I've been talking to for a a little over a year in emailing with, but I feel like I got to be on my complete a game and have read everything he's ever written to interview him for some reason, which is not the case, but I just want to be perfect when we finally meet. Setting yourself up for failure. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if your mission is to seek out new life, well, there it sits. <laughs> You're right. At you, you've been at this game for a couple of years now. I think, I think that you'll do just fine. Yeah. It's probably time. It's been time. All right, we'll, we'll look for that, uh, Liberty Weekly fans. Patrick's going to put on his big boy pants and get Stefan Kinsella on after his DK Williams episode, which I'm sure will be brilliant. So look forward to that. And uh, this, I don't think I mentioned this in the uh, opening, but this is episode 136 of Actual Anarchy. So you can find the show notes more at actualanarchy.com slash 136. And uh, any final comments uh, from you, Robert, before we say goodnight to everyone? I just want to say how much fun this was. I, I always enjoy having Patrick here with us. And he brings a level of expertise Sometimes a little bit dry, sometimes a little bit wet, <laughs> and uh, we wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't be the same show without him. So uh, hopefully he can keep coming back for these Star Trek episodes once a month. That'll be a lot of fun. It looks like it's a, a never-ending mine. I mean, I don't know if we want to do every episode, of course, but I'm sure we could pick out, you know, some really strong content to keep this thing going. So looking we're, forward to that. We're establishing a jurisprudence of summer specials. This is the second summer special that we've done. So. We'll keep the ball rolling. Yeah, baby. Yeah, always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. All right, and speaking Thanks, of the ball rolling, we are going to keep that Batman v Superman ball rolling as we tumble into Justice League and hopefully knock all those pins down next week with Shaheen's triumphant return. He's our Batman man from Adelaide, and uh, that'll be a lot of fun. So come back to us for that, and we're going to get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for our Patreon supporters. Hit us up at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. Uh, thank you very much, and maximum freedom, everyone. Good night. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do
In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.